Thank you, Aubrey, and thank you for the invitation to be here this evening. It is a delight to see you all. Thank you all for coming out. Um, it's just been great to be here in the Shenandoah area. Uh, so many trees and flowers in bloom. It, there was three inches on, of snow on the ground in Michigan when I left on Saturday. So we're very happy to be here. And happy to be here to talk about astronomy and the universe and uh, what God has to do with all of that. So, uh, as Aubrey said, uh, BioLogos was founded by Francis Collins. Our mission is to invite the church and the world to see the harmony between science and biblical faith. Uh, Serious scientists, serious theologians, how do we put this all together? Um, There's tons more on our website. So, one of the telescopes I use the most is this one, the Very Large Array Radio Telescope. It's in New Mexico. And uh, it detects radio waves from galaxies. So many galaxies will emit radio waves. And so you can't see those with your eyeball. You need a radio antenna to detect them. And each of these antennas is uh, 25 meters across, so a quarter of a football field. And the whole thing moves and steers. It's just impressive to watch the thing move around. And I had the privilege of using this instrument. So... Uh, when I used that instrument, I had this uh, sense of wonder looking at the universe. Not that different than the sense of wonder you might feel looking up at the night sky. So I imagine here you actually um, are able to see wonderful views of the night sky like this. Um, Quite often, you're in a fairly... It's not too hard to get to a fairly rural area here. How many of you have seen the Milky Way with your own eyes? Oh, yes, that's a much bigger number than I usually uh, see in audiences. Um, So in in this image here is that lovely band of the Milky Way. Also, a lovely view of a comet. This is Comet McNaught. It was uh, visible in the southern hemisphere uh, around 2007. Beautiful, bright comet. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see it here in the northern skies. And anybody who looks at this has that sense of wonder looking out at it. But for scientists, we geek out in almost the same way when we're looking at data. So I'm going to show you just a little bit of data to give you a feel for that. Uh, so, uh, and you, you're still my thunder here a little bit because I want to talk about gravitational waves. This is a big discovery just um, recently here. This is the data from uh, Livingston, Louisiana. So we'll put that up first because it is the, 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 the origin. What do you say? The origin of scientific discovery? Yes. Um, And uh, so this is a graph of time versus frequency, the frequency of detection. So what's it measuring? It's measuring the distortion of space itself, which is hard to think about. But if you think of uh, space as a grid, picture a piece of graph paper, uh, when space distorts, it actually stretches. Those uh, squares of the graph paper become rectangles and oblongs and so forth. And when space curves like that, Well, it can curve one way and then curve the other way and then curve this way. And what's going on is an actual ripple in the curvature of space is moving past the Earth. It's very, very subtle effect. The space is distorting a very, very small amount. And it took 20 years to build the instrument and get it working well enough to be able to detect this. Um, And it detects... It has a long baseline, a few kilometers long. They send a laser all the way down it, and it comes all the way back, and they measure the very slight difference in the waves when you send it a different direction. And they detect that through interferometry. It's an incredibly subtle detection. Um, They could easily pick up a uh, a truck driving past or a tree falling in the forest nearby. So how do we know this isn't a tree falling in the forest? Well, for one thing, what you're seeing here, there's noise in what it's detecting, just all sorts of little vibrations. But then this particular signature here, it's getting faster and faster in its vibration. And this little illustration here is meant to show the increasing pitch. If you know music at all, you know that uh, when it vibrates faster, that's a higher pitch. So they kind of put it in terms of sound here. But that particular signature is what they were expecting to see. So that's promising. Still looking at that, you go, well, how do you know that isn't just kind of random wiggles? Because they had a second instrument in Hanford, Washington, and it picked up the same signature just like that. I was watching the press conference streaming online when this happened, and they put that up, and I was like, oh, man, look at that. You know, I mean, it was just cheering. Um, it, It was great. And every scientist was cheering over this because it's such a long journey, such a challenging measurement. 
and such a dramatic discovery. Nobody has ever detected this vibration of space before. It is due to the collision of two black holes. So one black hole is amazing enough. Uh, black holes colliding is way cool. And having them orbit each other and send out this ripple of waves, that's what we're detecting. So this happened um, a billion light years from here and traveled all the way to us, and we picked it up as this very subtle vibration. So what does all this have to do with God? Well... Scientists, whether they believe in God or not, had the same reaction to that discovery. Wow, it's amazing. Um, here's a cartoon, Blue, Old Bloom County. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but here's um, Oliver, and he says uh, in the last panel, bloody difficult being an agnostic these days. <laughs> so you, you look up at the sky, and, and the sky doesn't say repent, Oliver. Instead, what we see is gravitational waves and radio waves from galaxies. But where does God come in? That sense of wonder for many people is what prompts them to uh, think there's something more going on here, something more than just the bare scientific description. It is something that speaks to our souls, to our emotions, um, to our sense of meaning and purpose in the universe. And many people sense that when they look out at the wonders that are out there. But not everybody comes to that conclusion. Other people will respond in different ways. So throughout this talk, I want to talk about different worldview responses to uh, scientific discoveries. So the word worldview I'm using here, uh, defining it as a philosophical or religious perspective on the world and life. So how do you answer those big questions? Is there a God? What is the point of it all? Is there, what happens after we die? Um, what, what's a meaning? How should we live? All those big kinds of questions get wrapped up in one's worldview. And it's more than just religion. So religions are worldviews, um, but people who are not religious also have a worldview. They have a way they answer those big questions. So how do people of different worldviews respond to things? They can respond to the same science in different ways. So uh, having a different worldview doesn't mean that you're doing different science necessarily. You could be doing the same science. Uh, and so I have a few examples here of, how, of different worldview perspectives. So here's Jerry Coyne. Um, Jerry Coyne is um, uh, a militant atheist, an anti-theist. He is opposed to religion of any kind. He calls it superstition. Um, in this quote, he's talked specifically about our organization, Biologos, and uh, says, you know, it's cognitive dissonance. How can they uh, accept science on the one hand, promote, they promote science, and then they promote superstition on the other? So he doesn't get what we're doing and frequently blogs about how we are mistaken. Okay, so, but we agree with him on science. The science is the same, but we have a very different worldview. But not all non-Christian worldviews are Jerry Coyne. Um, here's another one. This is Stephen Jay Gould. And Stephen Jay Gould um, tells a story in this quote about how a student came to his office who was a Christian and said, can a Christian believe both in God and in evolution? And he says, I gulped hard, did my intellectual duty, and reassured him that evolution was both true and entirely compatible with Christian belief, a position that I hold sincerely, but still an odd situation for a Jewish agnostic. And I, I know many of my astronomical colleagues are in the same position. They are talking with students in the classroom who are like, oh, I don't know, how do you fit this Big Bang stuff with Christianity? And, and the professors are trying to explain, well, I, th I think they fit together, but even if they're not religious themselves. But so, um, you know, that's, this is a view that would be then uh, friendly for a conversation. We can have a conversation about faith in this context. Um, here's a different view. This is Nancy Abrams, a book that came out last year. Uh, called A God That Could Be Real. And she says, all the old views of God are demonstrably inadequate to our times. The dawn of a new cosmology is the um, best tradition opportunity we may ever have to get it right. So the traditional views of God, she say, don't work at all with modern science. And what, the God that she proposes is an emergent phenomena that can have emerged only from humanity. So God, she's saying, yeah, God and religion, they're good things, but they're an emergent property of humanity, not some cosmic truth. So that's another worldview, different from the Christian worldview. And then here's a, an example of a Christian worldview. Alistair McGrath is a, um, he's, a, a, he's one of these triple P, 
a triple PhD, very rare. Uh, he has a PhD in science. I think it's a biochemistry of some sort. Um, he is a PhD in theology, and he um, also is a, a rector in the Episcopal Church in England. Uh, so he writes here about the kind of mental framework that we bring toward the natural sciences, um, how a Christian responds to this. And the way I'm going to talk about it here is that Christian faith gives us a lens, another worldview, a way of looking at the universe that brings it all together. So I'm not in this talk attempting to prove Christianity by looking out at the natural world. I don't think science can prove one of these worldviews is right. Um, I think the scientific evidence can play into the way you might choose between these different worldviews, which you find most compelling. But I encourage you then to try it with a Christian framework. If you take the Christian view of God as the creator of all things, um, a God who also loves us personally, consider the God of the Bible and then look through that lens out at the natural world, out at the people we see around us, at human history, at your own soul. Does it all fit? And for me, I've found it to fit in the most compelling way. So I want to show you the piece of that here in this talk of how the Christian faith, looking through that at the natural world, how that can fit together. So my outline, uh, I have five um, astronomical discoveries. We might only have time for four. We'll see how the time goes here. And, uh, and for each of those, I'll talk about different uh, worldview responses to them. So first up, uh, our Earth is one of billions of planets. So we know there's multiple planets in our solar system, but one of the most exciting discoveries in recent years is that there are many other planets in the galaxy, and this isn't a surprise, but it is really cool to actually start detecting them. So we now know that there are, uh, I checked uh, Wikipedia's page on exoplanets keeps us up to date. So as of April 2, we have found 2,109 planets in 1,349 planetary systems. Over 2,000 planets, and uh, there's many of the uh, stars that we're looking at that have multiple planets around them, so around over 1,300 stars, and more to come. So we now have the technology to detect these. And this is just an artist's conception here of uh, what these planets might be like, um, in the different sizes of them compared to planets in our solar system. Here you see Mars, Earth, Jupiter, Neptune. So we're getting to some that are small enough to be kind of comparable to Earth, and that's where it starts to get really exciting. You'll be hearing news stories. They've already been coming out, but I'm sure you'll keep hearing them. Ah, we have found a planet that's really like the Earth, and now we found a planet that's even more like the Earth, and now we found a planet that's really, really like the Earth. Okay. Because we are getting better and better at this. We now have detected enough that we know that, on average, there's about one planet per star in our galaxy. And that many of those are small, rocky planets about the right distance from their parent star in order to allow liquid water. About Earth gravity, you know, within a factor of two. In other words, kind of like us. And once you have those... The next question you're wondering is, well, is there life on those, or could we go to those? So, do these planets have intelligent life? Um, first of all, let me say that no aliens have visited the Earth. Okay? I was actually asked that in a talk at a university once. <laughs> they said that the questioner, who I think was, was from the community, not from the university itself, uh, said, when we discover that the uh, scientists, that, that the when the government finally releases the evidence from Area 51 and shows that the aliens are smarter than we are, then what will that mean for humanity? <laughs> okay, no, no aliens have come to Earth, and not that, that we have detected. And uh, we all now, now that we all carry cell phones, I mean, you, have, you would think there'd be a big rise in UFO detections because we could all take pictures, but um, no, it hasn't happened. So, no, no uh, aliens have visited Earth. We have also not detected. Um, the signals from space yet, although that uh, endeavor is continuing, and that's much more likely that we would detect uh, radio waves of some sort, some sort of signal from, because we're giving those out all the time. Um, that's not yet been detected, but the study uh, program, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, has uh, recently received a big infusion of funds, so that might be, maybe we'll find something. But we have been discovering these Earth-like planets, and the next generation of instruments is going to be able to detect atmospheres around those planets, 
And when you can detect the atmosphere, you can start looking at the chemical composition of it and how is, what does that look like. Atmospheres change if there is life on the planet, even bacterial life. So we might be detecting bacteria on another planet in the next 5 to 15 years, 10 to 20, something like that. All right, so that's the science of it. Now, how do people of different worldviews respond? Well, the announcement of uh, one discovery of an Earth-like planet last summer led this writer at the Huffington Post to say, well, none of the 66... This is an atheistic response. So none of the 66 books of the Bible make any reference to life other than that created by God here on Earth in that six-day period. So if we discover life elsewhere, one must admit that it's an oversight, so much so that the discovery must to all be to all but the most closed minds, call into question the entire story of creation. So he's saying, basically, if you discover life around another planet, that just rules out the entire Bible. Well, I, I disagree. Um, I think there are ways to fit this into Christian theology. There are also a lot of voices out there, while they might not be Christians themselves, are more open to a faith perspective on this. One interesting project here um, is called the 100-Year Starship Project, and it's um, you know, thinking ahead to what would it be like if we encounter life elsewhere if we're able to travel there or they are to here. What would some of the religious implications be? And they're inviting input from uh, people of faith. Oops. Some Christian responses. Well, the Bible actually does refer to non-human intelligence. Uh, it refers to angels. They are intelligent creatures created by God and having personality and will and so forth. We know just hints about them from the Bible, but it's an interesting angle on it that you might use as a, a comparison, as a thought experiment. Um, there's also Christian science fiction and I'm sure, well, like in all genres, there must be bad Christian science fiction, but there's also some pretty good stuff. Um, so uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, you might be familiar with uh, him, one of the great Christian writers and, uh, I mean, author of the Narnia series. He also wrote a science fiction trilogy, trilogy that explores what if there were intelligent life on Mars or Venus. Back when he was writing, that was a viable possibility. And there's a few other authors here. And so it's a need to, to think about what would the implications be for Christian theology, but people are thinking about this and uh, seeing ways to uh, incorporate that. What would Christ mean to them? Um, do they have, what would their relationship with God be like? When I see the extravagance of God's creation, I guess it wouldn't surprise me if God made other intelligent life other than us. All right, that was the first of, the, uh, of these discoveries that I want to talk about. All right, next up. The universe developed over a long time. All right, so I want to uh, explain a little bit of the evidence here that we have for the great age and the great size of the universe. This is uh, a photograph of the Andromeda galaxy. It's a sister galaxy to the Milky Way. A galaxy has a couple hundred billion stars in it. Uh, so it's a, it's a vast complex. The Andromeda is... Uh, galaxy is quite similar to the Milky Way. Both are spiral galaxies. You can see the beautiful spiral arms here. And it has some small galaxies that are in orbit around it. And it is so close to us that if it were brighter, it would be really big on the sky. So for comparison, here's the size of the full moon. So you can picture the moon on the sky. Picture the Andromeda galaxy next to it. Oh, that would be awesome if you could look up every night and see that. It's just too faint to see, but it's there. And if you know where to look in a dark sky environment, you can see the, the very center of it um, with your naked eye. But that gives you an idea of the, how big it is. It's, you know, be like a big, nice hand span on the sky. Well, in my research on uh, galaxies, I looked at uh, little patches of sky like that. Do you see the little square? Yeah, little patch. Uh, so let's zoom in on that and see how, what that actually looks like. So there it is. And uh, what I was studying here, this is a cluster of galaxies. That's a star. But each of these other blobs of light is a galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars in it. Um, although this one, this is one of this class of uh, very large galaxies that I studied in my research. But there are a lot of more typical galaxies here. So do you see this one here? It has that same oblong shape as the Andromeda galaxy. You can just tell by the shape. That's a similar kind of thing, except it's really tiny. There it is, very small. Picture how small it is in that square compared to this. How many times smaller do you think it is? Twice as small? No, it's more than that. Ten times? 
It's actually a couple hundred times smaller, suggesting that it is that much further away. It's the same kind of thing. It just looks small because it's so far away. The distance to this galaxy cluster is 1.4 billion light years. And of course, uh, a light year is the distance that light travels in one year. So we're seeing these objects not as they are now, but as they were 2.5 million light years ago, million years ago, and in this case, we're seeing it as it was 1.4 billion years ago. That's one of the more visual ways of getting a, a grasp of the size of the universe, some of the evidence that astronomers have when they're uh, measuring this, and thus the age of the universe. We're talking about a universe that is billions of years old. Here's a graph that does, tries to show the timeline of the whole universe in one graph. Hey, why not? You know. <laughs> okay, there's a lot on this picture. I'm going to come back to it a few times to fill in some details. But for the moment, I want to tell you that it starts here with the Big Bang, and then it goes all the way, time is moving forward here to the present day. And this diagram was produced by the WMAP satellite, so they have their satellite there. So humanity is here, and then it, we go into the past. The solar system formed 4.6 billion years ago, so it formed at about this time. And uh, since the beginning to now, you can see that uh, things have changed a little bit. In the way they've drawn this, they're showing the development of galaxies, that there's little fragments of galaxies here, and that they're getting bigger and uh, brighter here as you go along. So galaxies, planets, and so forth are developing over the history of the universe. It's not static. It's continually changing. So, how do people respond to the idea that the universe developed over a long time? Well, one atheistic re response, and this isn't a quote from a particular person, it's just the kind of thing that might be said, says, well, now we have a scientific explanation for the development of galaxies, stars, and planets, so we don't need God anymore. That's a common line of reasoning. And I would reject that. I would say that a scientific explanation does not replace God. Uh, we have scientific explanations for lots of things. Photosynthesis, gravity, cellular biology. We have scientific explanations. Um, so we understand how gravity keeps the planets in orbit around the sun. We've known that since Newton. And, and yet that Newton viewed God as being sovereign over that wonderful system, that whole system of gravity as being a, uh, a testimony to God's faithfulness and power. So having a scientific explanation doesn't mean there isn't also a religious explanation or a way of understanding it on top of that. And the same would be true here for the development of the galaxies. Not that everybody uh, would need to agree with this religious explanation, but it certainly doesn't rule it out. All right, here's um, another response. Well, um, the Bible teaches that there's thousands of years of history, like six or 10,000 years old, and not billions, and so a Christian might, there are some Christians who say, therefore mainstream science is wrong because the Bible is right. There are also atheists who will say, well, the Bible teaches that it's thousands of years and not billions, therefore Christianity is wrong because science is right. Okay, so you see how they're both assuming the same thing? They're assuming that's what the Bible teaches and that that can't fit with science. And on the face of it, yeah, and thousands of years isn't the same as billions. But is that what the Bible is really teaching? Now, this was a personal issue for me. I grew up in a Christian environment that was conservative. We believed the earth was young. And I wasn't sure for a long time how to fit these together. But then I began to learn more from theologians, biblical scholars, about what we really do know about Genesis and that context in which it was written. And it is an ancient text written in an ancient context. And without understanding that ancient culture, uh, it's easy to draw the wrong conclusions. The ancient cultures... Uh, in the Near East, like the Egyptians and Babylonians and the Hebrews, saw the, believed that the earth was flat. How would they know it was spherical? And they believed, believed it had a solid dome sky because they thought there was an ocean of water up there. That was where rain came from. Okay, so very different picture from us. They didn't understand uh, modern science at all. So in Christian thought, we believe that, that God was inspiring the text. So when God is communicating to his people the story of creation, he didn't put it in terms of general relativity and curved space-time and quantum mechanics. Oh, thankfully. Um, instead, God accommodated, in Christian thought, God accommodates the message to the people. And so he puts it in terms that they would understand, referring to structures like the, the dome, the firmament, if you know that passage, um, 
and putting it in a motif that was common at that time, a six-day framework for telling a story with a seventh day. Um, there's overtones of a temple, which was also a common motif at that time. There's a bunch of material on our website and in some of the books on the table out there that go into more detail on this. But it helped me understand that that passage was not meant to teach modern science. And therefore, it wasn't, if that wasn't the primary message of the text, then it wasn't conflicting with modern science either. The point of the text is that God is the creator and that it's all under his sovereign control, and that God created it good. Okay, so uh, this summarizes what I just said. God created the universe. So I'm, I'm going to put in yellow my own worldview response to things. Um, and uh, properly interpreted the Bible and the natural world give complementary, not conflicting information about God and the created order, and God continues to sustain the existence and, uh, of the natural world. All right, that was the second astronomical discovery of uh, how the universe developed over a long time. Next one here, I'm going to get into more, some more cosmology. So the universe had a beginning, and it contains mainly dark matter and dark energy. Oh, boy. All right, so first of all, uh, the, the universe had a beginning. So here I have... Oh, there it goes. So I have a little animation here. I'll just do that again so we can see it again. So, um, so uh, what these are, pictures of individual galaxies. These are pictures made by my students at Calvin College. If, if you want to come to a Christian college with a great astronomy program, try Calvin. Okay, there we go. Uh, so, uh, and in the animation, it illustrates the uh, dispersal of the galaxies, how they are all moving apart with each other. And here they go again. So the galaxies are all spreading out over time. So this is uh, one of Edwin Hubble's great discoveries. And we can then rewind it in our minds. Okay, just imagine. So in the past, they must have been closer together. Okay, so uh, here they are, closer together in the past. And that means going back to the beginning, they must have all originated at the same time. So we're here, we're looking back to the beginning of... uh, where this happened. The, the slight increase, the widening of this tube is meant to remind you that it's expanding, although the expansion is much greater than that little illustration. You'll also see there's a little bit of a curve here. It, in, it, it increases here as if it's expanding quickly, and then it kind of coasts, and then it increases again. And it says here, dark energy accelerated expansion. Um, so let me illustrate with my hands. It's easier. So, so the universe could be expanding steadily like this. There it is, moving apart. Or um, it could start out fast and slow down, maybe even slow down so much that it comes back and collapses. That's another model that people thought for a long time. Or maybe it starts out and then it just gets faster and faster. What we now know is that it starts fast, gets kind of slower, and then it speeds up. That's how the universe is expanding. Major discovery won the Nobel Prize in 2011. Um, I happen to know Adam Reese. We were fellow graduate students at the same time. We were even working on the same project. Then he went on to work on this one, and I went on to work on something else. <laughs> and, like, darn! <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, that, that was like a midlife crisis moment. Like, oh, that dream is gone. You know, it's not going to happen. Okay, so we now know that the universe is accelerating its expansion. All right, so we can then uh, we can keep rewinding it in our minds. So so it rewinds. You know, galaxies are getting closer together, and they get closer and closer and closer. And the uh, matter until it's all packed together, the whole universe was in a hot, dense state. Okay, number one primetime sitcom, uh, The Big Bang Theory. This is called The Big Bang. Now, I do not endorse the ethics on that show, but the physics humor is awesome. It's, it's, it's dead on. All right, so, um, so this is the Big Bang. Now, there are some scientists who refer to the Big Bang as if it replaces God. And again, I would say a scientific explanation does not replace God. Um, I would see the Big Bang as, I use that term the way scientists use that term, which is to describe a scientific theory, like we would say gravity or photosynthesis. But I would say the Big Bang is how a scientific description of how God developed the universe over time, from that initial hot, dense state through the expansion and the development of all that we see today. 
Um, the heat of this was, of the early universe was detected in 1965, so we're just past the 50th anniversary of the detection of the microwave background radiation. It's the afterglow of that heat from the early state. And uh, as uh, Aubrey pointed out, the universe began. We now know because we now understand exactly that speed of expansion. When we rewind it, we get a really accurate number of 13.80 plus or minus 0.04 billion years. And when I was a graduate student those many years ago, it was, well, it's 10 billion years, 20 billion years, somewhere in between, intense debates, um, disagreement about what the expansion rate was, and uh, people in different camps. We really, we know it was billions, okay? That wasn't disputed. It was definitely billions, but how many billions? <laughs> now we know it. 13.80 plus or minus 0.04. It's incredible. That's better than 1% precision. It's great. Okay, how many of you here are scientists and, and know what I'm talking about with air bars? Okay, yeah. I mean, you, you know what I mean? When you get the air bars really small, that is exciting. Okay, so uh, let's see. Have I added in anything to this picture? So, um, yeah, so there we are. This is the uh, development. There's the accelerated expansion, and we now know where the 13.7 comes from. All right, I want to say, a, how are we doing on time? It is... 720. Okay, well, I, because there are scientists in the audience, I wanted to go a little bit more about the evidence of how we know some of this stuff. And uh, if you're, you can just tune out if it gets too much for you. But uh, I wanted to say just a little bit more. So um, I wanted to tell you about the, the first tell you about the detectors. I showed you this big telescope uh, here. This is back what they used in 1965 to detect this stuff. Well, we have improved technology since then. So now we, in uh, the late 90s, the COBE satellite was launched, and it was able to detect the radiation. You can see that the box isn't empty. It detected something. But it didn't see much structure there. It was all, uh, it was, got the first hint that there was some structure. It wasn't all exactly the same radiation. And that was very exciting at the time, that there was something there. Uh, but then we had the launch of the WMAP satellite, and its results came out in the early 2000s. And the WMAP satellite had a precision to be able to see variation in different spots in the sky. That some spots, that radiation was a bit brighter, some it was a bit fainter. And those fluctuations uh, in space um, are what led later to the structures that we see today. If the whole universe was completely, absolutely uniform at the beginning, it would just stay uniform, just get more and more diffuse as it expanded. Where would the galaxies come from? Well. This finally detected some of those initial variations in more detail. Then the Planck satellite, um, their data was released just a few years ago, and you can see it's even higher precision here. And, and this shows, uh, again, the difference in precision from the two uh, spacecraft. Here's what it looks like when you take all of those blobs and you actually plot them. Uh, what this is showing is angular size on the sky. So on the axis here, it's going from really big features, like 18 degrees would be like... A, uh, your whole hand here across. One degree would be like your thumb or your finger, and then getting to smaller and smaller details. And this is what we have, and then on the uh, vertical axis is the temperature of the fluctuations or how intense and bright they are. And so what it's saying is that around the one degree size, that's the most common size. So when you look here at these blobs, they're typically about one degree across. That's what this peak is. But there's also some things that are, are smaller, smaller features. There's some things that are bigger features. All right, so here's, that's what this is plotting. Here's the WMAP data. It goes out to point two. The air bars are getting pretty large here. Planck come along and go all the way out to there. The data and the model are lining up all the way out to the, Oh, my word. This was so exciting when this came out. Incredibly, incredibly good match between the model, the curve, and the data, all these little dots here, and you know the air bars, you can't even see them, they're so small, and yet they're matching the data. And what determines the shape of that model curve? The amount of dark matter in the universe and the amount of dark energy in the universe and the amount of regular matter in the universe. And so by looking at these data, we know precisely what those values are. Uh, so here are the things I talked about. <laughs> So um, the universe is mostly not stuff that we don't understand. Okay, so here's a pie chart of the universe. <laughs> so it's helpful to have pie charts just because, you know, something familiar in the midst of a lot of really weird stuff. 
Um, of the stuff in the universe, 4.9% is atoms. Like, everything in this room is atoms. Um, uh, everything in the periodic table, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, iron, the atmosphere, the air, all of this is atoms. That atoms we understand really well. Thank you, chemists. We got atoms down. But in uh, the mid-1900s, we discovered that there's something called dark matter out there. And it's not atoms. We know it's not atoms. We also know it doesn't emit light. It doesn't block light. It doesn't interact with light. So we call it dark. But we know it's there because it has mass. It interact, the, uh, we can see it in the way stars orbit in the galaxy. We can see it in the way galaxies orbit around each other. We can see it in the way the universe expands. There is dark matter out there. And we're starting to get a handle on what dark matter is. Um, there's, uh, uh, there's hypotheses for different kinds of weird elementary particles. There's tests that are being done to look for those elementary particles. And I'm hoping in my lifetime that we'll know what dark matter is. I think that's possible. We're not there yet, but it's, we might get there. Then that discovery of the universe accelerating expansion, the Nobel Prize that I didn't get, that one. Um, that, we call that stuff dark energy that's causing the universe to accelerate in its expansion. That's because we, we don't know what it is. Dark energy is kind of a placeholder for that stuff we don't know what it is that's causing the universe to accelerate. It's probably some weird kind of energy field. Um, we're starting to get a bit of a handle on some properties of that energy field, but lots of open questions on it. But it does make up almost 70% of the stuff in the universe. Whew. So, lots of stuff we don't understand out there. Lots of things to wonder at. For me as a Christian, it's the kind of thing that um, stretches my mind to think of how vast this universe is and how little we understand of it. It reminds me that, that, that God is like that. God is incredibly fast. And although I know God, I know God because he came to earth as Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is my Savior. And Jesus said that if you know me, you'll know the Father. But there's so much I don't know about God, too. And there's so much more to learn. And science is like that. You can just keep learning more and more and more. We never come to the end of the questions. All right. So I wanted to, coming back to my outline, some worldview responses to this. Maybe not so much to the dark matter and dark energy part, but to the, um, the Big Bang part. What does this mean that we understand the beginning of the universe, that it had a beginning? And there's some interesting uh, things going on in the 1900s. So early 1900s, all the physicists thought the universe was eternally old. And then along came this discovery of the expansion, pointing back to a beginning. Uh, and you had Arthur Eddington and Fred Hoyle saying, the notion of a beginning of, nat of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. And uh, Fred Hoyle says, well, you know, the creation issue simply cannot be dodged. They were really concerned about this. It had overtones of religion. They, they didn't like the idea of the Big Bang. It sounded like religion to have a beginning. So it's kind of ironic that now, today, the term Big Bang is often used to refer to a more atheistic perspective. But when it was initially introduced, it, was, it had these religious overtones. However, another major cosmologist of the time, uh, Georges Lemaitre, uh, he's a, a cosmologist in Belgium, and he was also a priest, a Catholic priest. And he was one of the major leaders in mapping out the mathematics of how the universe could be expanding and could have a beginning. He didn't see any problem with that because it fit in his faith context. So this is an example of where um, your worldview might in impact what kinds of scientific questions you find interesting to investigate, what you think might be plausible when it's at the hypothesis stage, that sort of thing. Uh, Another atheist, so th this is much later, this is Stephen Hawking in his best-selling book, Brief History of Time, and uh, he writes, so uh, the, the idea of the beginning of the universe, he hypothesizes how it might get started. It had profound implications for the role of God in the affairs of the universe. So as long as the universe, you know, had a beginning that we didn't understand, we could suppose it had a creator. But... Now he, he, he talks about how he thinks the Big Bang got started. He says, well, what place then for a creator? In Stephen Hawking's mind, the role of God was to start things off. And if we can figure out how it started off without God, then we don't need God anymore. Well, um, I would say again, a scientific explanation does not replace God. Uh, there it is. Sci it, so, uh, 
uh, even if we come up with a physical mathematical explanation for those very first few moments, for the, um, anything about the structure of the universe, in my mind, that is just, just helping us understand even more about how God is governing this. Same science, different worldview responses. Science itself is the same either way. But what I, the point I want to make is that um, Christianity is, or any religion is not just ruled out by having a scientific explanation. Okay, I'll talk a little bit about fine-tuning, and then we'll get to the last point here. All right, so a fourth discovery is the fine-tuning of the universe. So um, we've found that the universe is fine-tuned for life as we know it. What is life as we know it? Um, I, I'm setting the bar low here. I'll, I'll go for bacteria. Okay, if the universe... What do you need in the universe to make... Uh, life where bacteria could happen. I'm not even talking about intelligent life, okay? But what do you need for that? Well, you need a couple things. You need a variety of atoms. You don't get bacteria if there's only hydrogen in the universe. You need some variety of atoms to have chemistry. And if you want to have life, you need a stable energy source, like a nice long-lived star, so that there's time for the evolutionary process to happen. I'm not talking tonight very much about biological evolution. Um, I do accept the evidence for evolution. I talked more about that this afternoon uh, over at Eastern Mennonite. Tons of information on our website about that. But I accept the evolution, the abundant evidence that all life forms on Earth um, evolved and are related to each other through the process of evolution. I believe God made it that way. That's the process God used to bring about life. And you can ask me more about that later. But that process does take time. And uh, so we're talking here about a nice long-lived star. So long-lived stars require several fundamental parameters of physics to be set just right. Oh, I didn't mention the variety of atoms. Atoms are made in stars. So to get um, anything but hydrogen and helium, you need... The, the fusion reactors at the centers of stars to make all the other stuff, the carbon, the nitrogen, and the oxygen, all the stuff in your bodies, made in the interiors of stars and then dispersed throughout the universe and eventually became part of our solar system and became part of us. Okay, so how do you get a universe that has stars in it and nice long-lived stars? Well, you need a couple things. Um, whoops. One of them that you need is for the expansion rate of the universe to be about right. Uh, if the expansion was too rapid, the initial gas at the beginning of the universe would just fly apart too quickly. I talked about the different kinds of expansion. If it just went whoosh, then all those gases at the beginning, that hot, dense state, it would just diffuse so quickly. Stars would never form. You wouldn't have stars. You'd just have a universe full of diffuse hydrogen and helium. Uh, but if it expanded too slowly... You know, if it just barely got started, well, all that matter in the universe would just draw it all back together, would just collapse back down, and you wouldn't have a very long universe at all. So what you need is the universe to expand at about the right rate, not too fast, not too slow, so that stars can form and stars can live out their lives. And to get it to expand at just the right rate, that's related to this stuff, the dark matter and the dark energy. So those parameters are set so that this can happen. We can imagine many universes where the parameters were set differently and life couldn't have happened, but these are set well. Here's another one. The force of gravity has to be just right. So if you're making a star, how do, okay, how do you make a star? You go to the grocery store and you buy a bottle of hydrogen. <laughs> okay. Um, how do you make a star? So you start with a gas cloud in space, um, maybe a light year across, nice big puffy glass, gas cloud, and it's slowly rotating like this. And uh, the gravity, though, begins to draw that cloud together, and it collapses down. And <laughs> you remember it happens with ice skaters? They're slowly spinning like this, and then as it collapses down and they bring it in, they start going faster? Yeah. I, I didn't do well at ice skating, so... but. <laughs> But you remember what that looks like, right? Same thing's going on with the stars. As it collapses down, it spins faster. The stuff gets more and more concentrated at the middle. And eventually, it gets so dense and packed in the middle that fusion turns on, and we now have a star. Stars are defined as stars that have a fusion reaction going on at the center. OK, so how does this fine-tuning part come in? Well, the force of gravity has to be just right. It's gravity that's pulling this in. If, if 
gravity was too weak, the gas at the centers of the stars would never get dense enough. You'd just have this puffy cloud of gas, and there are some puffy clouds of gas out there that just never collapse and form stars. But if gravity were too strong, the gas at the centers would get very dense. It'd be all packed together. Fusion would turn on, yes, but it would just burn through the star right away. You'd have really rapid fusion reactions. It would all burn up, be a flash in the pan. You wouldn't get the nice, long-lived, steady stars. So you need the force of gravity to be just right to get stars. All right, so do you see the pattern here? Can't be too big, can't be too little, has to be just right. Remember Goldilocks? So... Okay, so we're talking about Goldilocks parameters here. And I've, I've described two of them. There are others. Um, there's maybe not as many as some people think, but there are some really profound parameters that are set just right for life. Now, how do we respond to this? There is scientific consensus that the, our universe is fine-tuned in this way. Um, a lot of the answers about this have to do uh, with the multiverse. And I'm not sure I have time to talk about the multiverse now, so we can come back to that. Um, I will say that uh, some people say that the, if the multiverse produces lots of universes, then it's not too surprising that you get one where things are just right. Uh, but there's also a scientific understanding that the multiverse itself would have to be fine-tuned in certain ways to produce the universes we see. So I see the universe and the multiverse, if it exists, as being crafted and designed um, in such a way that we can have life today. It's as if um, God were the master craftsman at the beginning, and he's like, okay, I want this whole pattern to play out, and these are the ingredients I'm going to need to do it. Things will have to be set this way, and then we're just going to keep that consistently and watch this beautiful gradual development of all these things over time. And that's what we see happening. All right, fifth and last point, the place of humans in the universe. I've talked about a lot of aspects of this. Let's bring it back to, like, what does this mean for us, our place in the cosmos? Uh, this picture, by the way, is a gravitational lens, one of the things I studied in my research. I can talk more about that in the question time if you want to. Um, our place in the cosmos is, well, we have a small footprint compared to this vast universe and multiverse. We are indeed very small. Uh, we're small in time. Compared to a 13.8 billion year history, our lives are 70, 100 years. They're short compared to that length of time. We have a small footprint in the universe. And we're small in terms of the stuff we're made of. We're made of the 5% of the universe, not the most of the stuff in the universe. So in those kinds of senses, it feels like we're on the margins. And yet... Uh, we actually are part of, we're typical of this universe too. So arguing from the other side, um, we're at a typical location, not at an um, unusual location. We are, here's our sun between the center of the galaxy and the edge. We're at a typical spot. Our planet Earth, this is from Copernicus himself, his drawing of the solar system. There's the sun, there's the Earth, the planet's going around. You know, we're one of many planets. We are part of the typical stuff of this universe too. Um, our Earth, now we know, is one of many of these thousands of habitable planets. So we're not at a unique location. We're made of stardust, as I said. The stuff in our bodies has come from the stars. And we evolved in common ancestry with animals. I said a little bit about evolution. Our human bodies contain the same fundamental biochemistry as all life on Earth. And we share many genes with other mammals and other primates. We are part of the stuff of the life forms of this cosmos. So we have a small footprint. We're part of the universe, but the universe is fine-tuned for life. So all of this seems to be part of the ingredients of the universe from the beginning. How do people respond to this? Well, some atheistic responses. Uh, and I'm sorry, my slides are getting more wordy as we get to the end of the talk. I, I apologize, but I'll try and hit the highlights so that you are, are getting it here. So some atheistic responses. Well, some people say, well, the fine-tuning, that's the multiverse just explains it away. Well, actually, that's incorrect scientifically. It doesn't. Um, and then they'll tend to spin these arguments both to say we're insignificant. We're small. We're part of a rare part of the universe. We're small compared to it. So that means we're insignificant. 
but we're part of the typical stuff of the universe in other respects, so we're nothing but the stuff of the universe. Either way, humanity is just small. Um, so Carl Sagan said, who are we? We find we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe. Carl Sagan was a great astronomy, astronomer, astronomy educator, but he was an atheist, and his worldview is coming through very clearly here. Um, atheist author Christopher Hitchens said, only the most extraordinarily self-centered species could imagine that all this was going on for our sake. Somebody asked me this afternoon, why is it people have this gut response to this, these discoveries of the universe? It was very different hundreds of years ago. People would look at the vastness of the night sky and feel that they were closer to God in some way, that they were more significant, that they were part of something bigger, not feel like, oh, I'm isolated and small and alone and insignificant. There's something different about our culture that this idea has become to be so prominent. It's not required by the science itself. We can spin it a different way. For the fine-tuning, we can picture what I described of God crafting a universe to accomplish his purposes in creating life. Um, our, for the small footprint, why does being small mean we're insignificant? Um, there are many small things in our lives, big things, and who's to say what's insignificant and what's not? Um, and in Christian teaching, God treasures all parts of creation in their own right, um, especially in Job, and uh, you pick it up in the end of the book of Jonah. God really cares about animals and about trees, and all of those things are part of his creation. It's not that God made all of this just for, so he could have humans. God delights in the whole kit and caboodle. Um, it goes on for verses in Job about the ostrich and how cool the ostrich is and how silly the ostrich is. And, um, it, you know, it's all right there in Scripture. And, you know, the ostrich wasn't... It just seems to be made to delight God. Um, and as for being part of the stuff of this universe, think about the incarnation. This is the church of the incarnation. Christ himself became incarnate. This is God the creator of the whole cosmos. In John 1, it says that uh, Christ created all things. Do I have the verse here? Yes. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word here is referring to Jesus Christ. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him, all things were made. Jesus Christ was present for creation. All was made through him. But that Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There's one paraphrase that says, God moved into the neighborhood. God became part of the stuff of this universe. He took on the atoms that were made in the stars, and he lived out the lives that we live. Um, there's a philosopher, uh, Ernan McMullen, put it this way. When Christ took on human nature, the DNA that made him the son of Mary may have linked him to a more ancient heritage, stretching far beyond Adam to the shallows of, an, of unimaginably ancient seas. And so in the incarnation, it would not have been just human nature that was joined to the divine, but in a less direct but no no less real sense, all those myriad organisms that had unknowingly over the eons shaped the way for the coming of the human. Christ became incarnate as one of us. To God be the glory. Thank you for your attention.